Hello and welcome to another episode of the Super Learner Podcast. Today I'm joined by Rene Nauheimer. Rene is an online hey. founder of a faci faci facilitated school and a, a polyglot as well. So welcome, Rene. Hey, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great being here. So we actually met on, on Gwen's course on uh, online facilitation. And I think your background is also in online facilitation. So how did you get into that? Online facilitation was actually a very interesting journey. It didn't start online at all. It started through physical facilitation. And the path has been a bit through studies, actually. Back in the study time in Germany, I studied in a city called Aachen. And I met really? uh, my co-founder, Daniel. Yeah. I just want to say I, I studied there as well. I studied at the FR, so the uh, okay. Applied Sciences. Yeah. And funny though, so we have more in common. Yeah. But I met Daniel in, in the early days of the studies and, and we kind of connected early on and have been trying multiple projects together and I've been actually practicing a lot other than studying. So we've been working and making stuff outside of studies. And one of the things we came into was web design and building stuff for clients. And we noticed that this path wasn't always the most efficient one, especially we would ship something to clients and clients would be uh, coming back with us in feedback loops. And actually we were like running these feedback loops at times. And at some point we came across something which is called the design sprint, which is uh, mm -hmm. basically a five-day recipe to go from idea to tested solution uh, and to get the feedback from the client like very early on. And this was a way for us to actually integrate the client in the work that we were doing, which, which is really nice because that way we save tons of feedback loops. And we enjoyed the process a lot. But what we didn't think about was the facilitation of this workshop where the client was in. And what we were doing were basically facilitation without knowing that we were facilitating. And that was kind of the first step how we got into it. And then we were asked to not only do design sprints, but also facilitate workshops, for example, and, and do more custom workshops. And that was slowly how we saw that uh, yeah, this felt really good, it was super productive, the results were also there. And, and we noticed at some point, hey, it's maybe not just about the framework, but about the person who also leads the process and, and this whole frame around, okay, how does a group actually come together? And uh, this led us then to discover the world of facilitation a bit more. And with the pandemic, after lots of workshops given in, in physical environments, this moved in the digital direction. And that was also a bit the kickoff of the facilitator school. So what we do now. That's awesome. That's very interesting. So you said you started facilitating around the web design. And so the facilitation that you do now, is it still mostly in a professional setting or um, like what are you helping people learn in your facilitation? So what we actually do nowadays is a bit of a two street way because we're on one side enrolled in the facilitation of collaboration. So it's not actually learning, but more, okay, how does a group come together in order to produce something like in a workshop, for example, that is more results driven in a sense that they want to accomplish something in that session with us. So we guide them. And the other side is more learning facilitation is what we do in our course, because we actually also teach what facilitation is and how you can use it in the, in your organization's environment. And that is then basically the learning facilitation itself. So we're kind of doing both nowadays. Nice. And yeah, so in this journey to learn facilitation, I guess both first offline and then online, what has been your own main struggle? Like what was the most difficult thing to learn or the biggest insight that you gained? In facilitation itself, like when facilitating? Yeah, yeah, about, mm. about learning this skill. 
Yeah. I think for me, it, it was to see how, uh, it, I mean, it's a cliche, but uh, the better that I felt at the moment I entered the group session, the better the whole thing would go. So basically, I think the better the preparation, the better the session would go. And, and also, the better I would be able to deal with very spontaneous problems or issues, for example, which would give me a lot of peace of mind. So I think that that was the main insight I got. I didn't have to get so much better by just by focusing a lot of attention on being really well prepared when I came in, like everything, the structure set, my facilitation cheat sheet ready. I call it a cheat sheet, but it's basically just yeah, the bullet points and, and uh, the directions I want to follow. Made it much easier for me to have like one solid ground ready and then being able to adapt from that if there's need in the group and at the same time be present with uh, what's coming up. Nice. And yeah, so you mentioned the cheat sheets and I think a lot of people really like having checklists or something for for this kinds of events. So how did you come up with uh, the cheat sheet? Is that something you slowly built over your experience or are there any major frameworks that you use? The cheat sheet is something that developed, I think, very loosely. Usually I would, uh, when facilitating events or workshop, I would have uh, my notes page in, in Rome. I would have open, I have my bullet points for the event ready on things I want to tackle upon. Sometimes even things I want to say for sure. For example, I don't know, this is an open mic session. Feel free to have the mic and the camera on, blah, blah, blah. Um, to actually invite people to participate more. And I would like to have these things ready so that I don't have to improvise everything and i think over the time the, the cheat sheet actually developed into uh, something that i would do every time so i would just create it every time but last time for the first time we actually standardized it so that it's now uh, something that we can use for multiple sessions and over and over again but it's definitely something that i rely heavily on uh, and what i also love about for example virtual facilitation because i can have the screen open i can be talking to you for example now but i could have also have my uh, cheat sheet here and, and it would be better to just keep the structure in mind, keep the time in mind, and, and just remind me of these things that would easily slip my mind. Yeah, definitely. And so if you were to do an offline facilitation session, do you have all of the points of the cheat sheet in your head, or is that because it's become more loose, uh, more improvised? I haven't used it in the, the new one. I haven't used the new one in a physical environment yet, but I know that from last physical sessions, there was always a checklist, so I would just have it on the table, for example, and make sure that you're on a good path. And before introducing an exercise, I would probably also take some notes on a checklist. So the checklist would be kind of a mess a bit. It would be structured, but then I also write with the pen around it to see where I can still fit in things that I want to say. All right. And so on the checklist, like, does that actually connect with the, the main principles that you use in facilitation to help others to learn? Or is that something which is almost which you have to know intuitively rather than something you can write out it's a good question i think it is possible to use that checklist once and combine it for multiple sessions especially if it's a checklist for example what to do before a virtual workshop because there are multiple things we follow right so uh, how can we invite the participants best uh, make sure that there are no technical problems because there are some things which repeat themselves over and over someone would have problems with entering the call or if we work on a digital whiteboard for example yeah it could be the case that a company has a firewall blocking the whiteboard from appearing on the screen and that is something we can, with good preparation, make sure that it's not happening. So, yeah, I think a checklist can be used 
over multiple contexts if it's, for example, fitted to this how to work together virtually, what to do before a virtual workshop. If it's more around a specific framework, like the design sprint, for example, then it gets more difficult. And I think it, it's difficult to apply to every workshop. Right. So like in the case of a design sprint, what are the main guidelines or principles to facilitate a design sprint in such a way that people are most productive? Yeah, it's, it's funny that you say it because the design sprint is actually built on, on some of these principles. Uh, so that principles that uh, we tell the participants that they get to form the right mindset for the design sprint. For example, one is getting started is more important than being right because one of the things that comes over and over in a design sprint is also that in the beginning, especially quantity is more important than quality. We just want to empty the mind and, and put things out. So these are like, there's a couple of principles in the design sprint. And then there are some principles that we take with us as facilitators, right? So the things that we keep in mind. And, and I think one of the things that, that is super important for me is to look for the minority in the group. So to make sure, if I have the opportunity, I would always take a one-on-one -on -one in the beginning to, to make sure that before I get into the room, I have actually seen the people already. So that is kind of my golden treasure a bit. So I, I love to see the people up front. I, I love to ask them what the expectations are. I also love to ask them what their hopes and fears are. Uh, when they come into this group, are there specific people they have problems working with? Do they think that they might represent a minority in some case? And uh, if so, that is really important for me to know. So I think one main principle for me is let, yeah, letting the minority speak and making sure that the majority is listening. Right. Yeah, I think that's important as well. And then yeah, I noticed you mentioned earlier Rome Research, and I'm sure yeah. there's lots of other online tools. Okay, talk a bit about the tools you use in your facilitation and learning process as well? Yeah, good question. So I've been using Rome for quite a while now, but not for specific that I actually specifically chose it because I found it's the best tool. It's just because my co-founder Daniel is kind of the big wizard around tools and he always confronts me with new tools. And then I'm like, okay, let, let me try this out. But nowadays it's also, I'm still in Rome and he's somewhere else already. So he's kind of shifting also. And, and I just, yeah stayed with Rome for now, because I think it, it gives me kind of peace of mind to be just in, in, in one place and prepare everything there. So what I like about it definitely is that it's super minimalistic and I can just write my thoughts down and I have these daily pages, which, which give me a lot of freedom. And at the same time, I can still open my main lines of thought in a separate space, which with notes that I created before. Uh, so this is super helpful for me. Um, other than that, I don't use much for my thought process, actually, I think. Rome is the main thing. <laughs> my, my brain is in Rome at, at this moment, I would say, because I also journal there and I just put a lot of what's on my mind in Rome because you can also yeah, do, do timestamps and I just do, for example, if I'm in the middle of preparing something, but there's another thought just running my mind and just want to get out there and I just put it in a timestamp. It's 11.43. I'm currently this is on my mind. I just want to put it here and then I can refocus and uh, work again. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know you speak uh, a lot of uh, languages as well. I think Portuguese, German, Dutch, what, what other ones? You know, yeah, you, the main one you told already. Uh, a bit of French works, a bit of Spanish. And yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> so how did you come to learn all of those languages? Uh, has that been like organic or have you deliberately chosen to move somewhere to learn a language or how did it come about? Yeah, so I think I got into languages a lot for two reasons. Uh, one reason is that my parents come from two different cultures. So my mom is Brazilian and my dad is German, which led me to learn these two languages 
from the ground up. And it also led me to confuse both languages. So I would sometimes travel to Brazil as a child for summer vacation. I would come back and I forgot some sentences in German. And then I wouldn't ah, be able to really communicate in school. That's interesting. I, I actually lived in the uh, south of Brazil for a while in Santa Catarina, where there's actually a, a German subculture of German settlers uh, in there. Yeah. So there, I think that would be the perfect place for you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. I also heard about a city called Blumenau. Blumenau, uh, yeah, I think to the Oktoberfest there. The... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's super funny that I have this. And yeah, but that, that was, I think, one, one of the reasons I kind of stepped into languages so early on because I can, yeah, I saw these languages and I had to speak them within the family. And the other reason is that I grew up at a point where almost three countries meet each other. So I, I grew up next to Luxembourg on the German side, though, and the French side is also not far. And because of that, in the school and in the region, people put a lot of focus on learning French early on and because the job market is pretty attractive in Luxembourg. So I was confronted with French pretty early on, and I actually learned it before English. And my English was very shitty at school, so I kind of picked it up later during study time. <laughs> and right. Yeah, but that's a bit how it developed. Nice. And do you have any, because I, I know you, you learned some Dutch as well. So do you have any techniques that you use for uh, using languages or is it, did you learn so early that you forgot all about that? Yeah, I think for the first time that I took a, a more intentional approach to languages was with Dutch because I moved to the Netherlands one and a half years ago. And by knowing that I would move, of course, the language played a big role uh, since I moved with a couple of friends and for the first time we're confronted, okay, we moved to the new country, how can we learn this new language? And I think it wasn't super technically, so we weren't learning it on a daily basis, but we started with multiple strategies. So for example, Duolingo was like one at first time, we were just then skimming into that and trying it out. But then, yeah, my success story with Duolingo was limited. And then we had a private teacher, which taught us via Zoom. And mm -hmm. I think over your Skype, actually. And, and that was, I think, the most effective one because she was very strict in a way that she wouldn't speak English with us or not much. From the first moment on, we were basically immersed in Dutch and had, I had no idea what she was talking about, but it made us, it, it set the expectations high. And uh, at some point, I think we, we got used to it. And I think we did it for a year or so, the course. Once mm -hmm. a week, just coming together with her and she would prepare something and we also had homework. And, and, and these very intimate setting of four people, it's just our group of friends who had this, this teacher, was really nice because we had a lot of practice time. Everyone had to speak. We sometimes, as a homework, had to read journal articles. And right. then we would have to present them in the class. So that was kind of cool to, to learn it in that way. And then I think at some point we noticed that we were learning more from living in the Netherlands than actually from the course. And, and that was the moment where we switched and we said, okay, uh, maybe we don't need a course anymore now. We got the basics spoken. We still are not practicing to write very much. We're putting a lot of focus on the spoken language. But yeah, at some point there was this transition moment then. Right. And so when you discovered that actually you were learning more by immersing yourself in actual like Dutch culture, I guess, did you become more deliberate about that as well? Like going to, I don't know, some Dutch events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for sure. I think for me, the, the main thing I use to pick up the language is to listen to others while they speak. So I'm in the train or in a cafe or whenever I like listen to uh, people around me, I would try to pick cues or, or sentences that they are saying 
And sometimes if I notice about it, I would also notice patterns about different groups, what they were talking about and different ways of saying something and the accent, for example, that I would try to embed that in my speaking as well. Because I, sometimes I think being able to speak, not a dialect, but some, yeah, the way of speaking something or the language ma makes a big difference also. And using some words can, can make a di big difference in people thinking that you are from that country or that you're not even German. <laughs> yeah, that's like the, the main goal, right? Like actually falling yeah. into thinking you're a native. Yeah. You managed it in what language? I think I managed it in, in German quite well. In Brazil, it was a bit more tricky. Yeah, yeah. But even in yeah. Brazil, there are these things that they say, these words or the way of saying things that I think focusing on these one or two percent of the language that can make a big difference in lifting the other part of what you already know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, do you have some examples? Just uh, let's go through, through some of the examples for Portuguese, maybe. In Brazil, yeah, I was just thinking about it as well. So, for example, if we would go for dinner, for example, and we're just getting ready at home, we could say vamos embora, or vamos is, I think, ah, the very simple way to, to say it, or the very usual way to say it. But you can also say just bora, uh, which means that, uh, yeah. yeah, it's just a more <laughs> casual way of saying let's go. And I think just embedding these casualities, that is another problem, actually, the mixing of languages. I yeah. even forgot some parts of German or sometimes in German I also, I know it's not that I forgot German, but it's sometimes that I would use Dutch words in German. So how, how did you yeah, find it's... out because German and Dutch are not too different? So was that more of a help or was it more of a distraction to, to mix them? Yeah, that is a good question. I'm not sure yet. So it was definitely a help to learn Dutch. That is for sure. The speed of learning a new language, I think, helped us a lot by having German as a ground because there are so many words that are the same. There are so many grammar elements that are similar, at least. So I think uh, learning Dutch from a German point of view is much easier than learning it from a Brazilian point of view, for example. So that plays a huge role. And to be honest, that is also how I learned all the other languages. For example, French, I could learn easier because I had Portuguese. Spanish, I could learn yeah. easier because I had Portuguese. And yeah. even now in some languages like Dutch, which is kind of a cocktail of languages, I have the feeling sometimes, uh, because you have el English elements, French elements, German elements. It helps to distill a bit the essence, right? For example, cadeau is also a Dutch word, right? Yeah, I, I had the same, like I learned a little bit of Spanish and French as well. And yeah, with my Portuguese, it was quite easy to just uh, kind of guess what the right word would be and I could get away with it. <laughs> yeah. How did you get to Brazil though? Or why um, Brazil? I I went there for exchange during university and then I stayed there to do it to an internship and my master thesis as well. Yeah, and I initially went, well, my uncle actually migrated to Brazil like 25 years ago as a, a farmer because he's like a farmer's son. Um, so that's why my oh, well. in initial interest was third. And then I actually got a Brazilian girlfriend at that time as well. So then I thought, well, let's just go and uh, graduate there. So. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. Fun time, I can imagine. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, it was really fun. It was a great time. Yeah, so maybe tying that back a bit into facilitation, like I feel if you learn multiple languages, you also kind of know multiple cultures, you understand a wider range of people. Did you have the same experience and does that help with facilitating different groups as well? Yeah, for sure, I think. One of the things I learned very early on is that basically the opposite of naive realism, that uh, 
Right. Naive realism is basically the assumption that everyone sees the world as you do. And, and I think uh, I learned very early on also because of growing up in between two cultures that is not the case and how different it can be also. For example, doing the same exercise, preparing for travels with a German family is very different than preparing for travels with a Brazilian family, for example. And I think just being okay with that and, and, and learning the ways people tackle things was always very interesting to me. And I think I developed pretty early on a curiosity for this as well and kind of an acceptance also, the, the acceptance of not, of not wanting to change someone to, to behave in a certain way. And, and I think in facilitation, the main task actually is to hear people as they are and, and accept them how they come. Because when there is a workshop, for example, multiple people come in and different people have different expectations about what to come out. And then we just don't listen really about what the intentions are or we try to change them to go together to run direction and make a decision. And then that decision is made and probably it will not be uh, very long term or people won't act on that decision. So that's, that can be a big problem, right? You, you have a solution, but that was created with a lot of enthusiasm, but then it's not followed through. And I think in facilitation, what we can do is actually let people arrive as they are and, and make sure that they meet in a way that they also see each other without trying to press them in the same box. Yeah, I think, I think that's very important. And yeah, you mentioned a lot of times uh, we resolve to do something and then don't actually follow through upon that. Uh, I think the same is, is probably true in learning. We often want to learn lots of different things, but we only have limited time. We are busy. What have you found to work to actually follow through on something you resolve to, to learn or to accomplish? Oh, that's a good one. So I think I'm really bad at discipline in general. At least uh, I think I can build up some willpower to do something, but I found that usually what I do is a product of my environment. And I tried to embed that more into what I do because I, I just found that with discipline, I just wouldn't get through, for example. Also with learning, I could just, yeah, learning Dutch now. I didn't do Duolingo for, I think, a week in a row or something because there was just one day where I didn't do it. And I was like, I didn't get that streak, shit. But, but at the same time, once a week going to this call where I would be in a Dutch environment, people would speak Dutch. Yeah, would help me because there's just no other chance for me than to actually learn the language. And I would do so with many things. I do so with sports as well. I, I like to have the sport environment so that I don't have to uh, motivate myself to go to sports. It's just something that is there where I know I enjoy the environment. So it's less about the thing that I want to do, but rather about having a, a circle of people who do the same. And I think that is also why, for example, the course with Grin or the cohort-based course with Grin was so nice. It's just because there are so many people on the same path. And yeah, I just like that for multiple things. For example, I also have a reflection group we meet or we used to meet once a week. Now it's a bit less, but uh, at the same time, it's just I could do reflection on the last week for, on myself through the journaling, for example. But I really like to do it with a group because then we're together. We kind of tell that story to another person and we kind of are in a way more reflected way and mood and to make a short, I really like just having uh, a group of support in, in different areas of, of life. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's great. Like becoming conscious about your environment, actually shaping your environment so that it helps you accomplish what you, what you want to accomplish. Yeah. So maybe finally, how do you see the role of tools or maybe like even growing awareness around facilitation, like what needs to be done to uh, help us make the most of all the information that's out there and actually learn from that. 
Yeah, that's a big one. Because now there's also yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah, there's so much information, right? The whole web is full. And it's huge. I, I think what I like about this movement of cohort-based courses at, the, at, at this point in time is there is so much information that is floating out there, but when there's a group of people coming together and it gets distilled from one source, which, for example, it could be the facilitator, then I feel having that person who distills the knowledge, in this case, Gwyn for us, for example, really helps to, to just focus on the essentials, right? Because... Uh, lots of what we see when you learn new things and read information. For example, I want to build muscle. Then I just go on the web, how to build muscle. But often it's not the, the first principle thinking that we see. It, it's rather the surface knowledge that we get. And, and I think facilitating learning, if I think about that, I, I would try as a facilitator to also keep that in mind. Okay, how can I follow through with first principle thinking? How can I make it as easy as possible for people as a beginner who like are in a very different mindset than me, for example, in that domain, um, get started as cleanly and without noise. Yeah, actually, maybe one, one more follow-up on that. Like, how can we distill the first principles in a, in a given area and build the right mental models to become fluent in, in an area? Does it just require huge amounts of, of time or are there processes? I'm, I'm not aware of processes to follow there, but I think it's just general reflection. Uh, because we are like with heads down so often in the work that we do. And I think just stopping and yeah. looking back and say, okay, the, the last things I facilitate, for example, what can I use? And I don't do this very often. I should do it way more often. But I think what can I use, for example, from here on that would probably pay off in the following sessions or in the future and, and trying to distill these essence from what I learned. Because all of these learnings often based on kind of the same package of, of wisdom right and and so that is one thing i think general reflection and also i'm a huge fan of group learning so just putting a situation a case which could be very noisy and very difficult for a group and then doing that with them together okay so what can we learn if we would set up a new session here so i i would actually not come with the solution but i would come with the question and then trying to make that process that you asked about together with the group and and just following through yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground. So, Renee, what I always ask is, who would you like to see next on this podcast? Oh, that's a uh, a lovely <laughs> question. Have you had Gwen already? No, I haven't actually. Okay, uh, I think she would be super interesting to, yeah, to have her. Yeah. I can imagine that that is that is a really interesting one. Otherwise, there is one person in the. Rome sphere, I believe, or especially in a note-taking sphere, I will forward him to you. Uh, I actually maybe had him on a podcast uh, one week ago. Okay. <laughs> okay. Whoa, really? Okay. Yeah, that, uh, will, that will be released soon. <laughs> okay, that, that is uh, a bit of mind-blowing to me. Okay, but then, then I think uh, I have no one additionally. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. So thanks a lot, Renee. And if people want to reach out to you or find out more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? LinkedIn in general, just uh, Renee Nauheimer and you, you'll find me there. And everything I do for facilitator school is there and also uh, write for myself, but that can also be found there. Awesome. Excellent. So thanks a lot, Renee. Hey, thanks for your time. <laughs>